the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, mass markets blast from an altered past and a war-torn future into your Christmas stocking and beyond the infinite. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have a two-part roundtable discussion with Michael Z. Williamson and authors this time in a great new anthology called Freehold Resistance. This is a short story collection edited by Michael Z. Williamson, but it's also a complete novel or story cycle in that it tells the story of the resistance during the UN invasion of Freehold that's recounted in Mike's groundbreaking novel, Freehold. These are the stories of the individual resistance fighters who come together in a libertarian manner in defense of the mostly libertarian planet, Freehold, after the fascistic UN decides they've had enough of these freedom-loving types and invades. We have Michael Z. Williamson, Jessica Schlenker, Mike and Jamie Denote, and Jamie Ibsen in on the roundtable. And we continue with the audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The Bain December mass markets are out, and ho, 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 for your reading pleasure, now at booksellers everywhere, is Grantville Gazette 8, edited by Eric Flint and Walt Boyas. Hey, here's a generous helping of more stories of Grantville, the American town lost in time, that is, a West Virginia town thrown back into the middle of war-torn Europe in the 1600s, and its impact on the people and societies of that tumultuous age. Also out in mass market right now is A Pillar of Fire by Night by Tom Crapman. Carrera, who is the series hero, has held off his enemies from the north in the process dealing forces of the Zong Empire a stinging defeat. But now his adopted country of Balboa is under assault, and it's beginning to look like the game is up. But Carrera's been planning this war for 15 years. He certainly hopes his enemies think that they're winning. A Pillar of Fire by Night by Tom Crapman and Grantville Gazette 8, edited by Eric Flint and Walt Boyas, are now available in mass market paperback editions and more at booksellers everywhere. Merry, happy, jolly, jolly. This is part one of a two-part roundtable discussion. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. want to welcome Michael Z. Williamson, Jessica Schlenker, uh, Chris Denote, uh, and Jamie Denote, and Jamie Ibsen to the podcast. Hello, folks. Hello. Hey, how are you? Hey. Hello. Let me introduce uh, our distinguished panel who are going to be talking about, of course, Freehold Resistance, which we'll, we'll talk about in just a moment, um, is, a, is a new book edited by Michael Z. Williamson set in his Freehold universe. Michael Z. Williamson is variously an immigrant from the UK and Canada 
a retired veteran of the U.S. Army and U.S. Air Force with service in the Middle East, uh, consulted on disaster preparedness and military matters to private clients, manufacturers, TV and movie productions, and occasional DOD elements, bladesmith, award-winning and best-selling editor and author, and his hobby of collecting weapons has led him into an arms race in which he outguns Barbados and Iceland so far, and I can attest to that. Um, <laughs> Jessica Schlenker holds an MS in Information Security and Assurance, a bevy of industrial certifications, and a BS in Biology. Uh, there's, so there's a lot of letters after her name. Uh, she works as a professional nerd in the field of IT security. Sadly, she is too much of a white hat to actually combine these specialties into creating her own cyborg army, or so she says, but she's thought about it. Chris Denote has served 20 years so far in the United States Air Force and Air National Guard, Pennsylvania and Ohio. He has deployed in Operations Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. Chris is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy and the USAF Weapons School. He holds an M.A. in Military History from Norwich University and a Master's in Strategic Studies from the Air War College. A very amateur musician, Chris has also played saxophone and bass in several bands, just like he uh, feels if uh, if he plays the saxophone like Deacon Blue. He was born in Pennsylvania and raised in, in South New Jersey, in South Jersey, um, and resides wherever the Air Force tells him to with his wife and co-author Jamie and their daughter Remy. Um, and Jamie is also here. Uh, there's two Jamies. Jamie Denote is a veteran of the Florida Nas uh, Army National Guard and U.S. Army Reserve. She mobilized for Operation Noble Eagle in Washington. Man, we have a distinguished panel here. Washington, D.C. Jamie is a graduate of Seattle University ROTC and holds a B.A. in criminal justice. Uh, due to the demanding PCS schedule, she's a stay-at-home mom and a military spouse and is working on her first novel. Um, and finally, we have Jamie Ibsen. Uh, and and Jamie uh, and um, Chris, you wanted to actually let me add, let me have you do your disclaimer after we get to Jamie. Uh, Jamie Ibsen was born in London, uh, Ontario, Canada, and he's in Canada right now. And joined the CF Army Reserves as an infantryman while still in high school. A six-month tour of Bosnia in 2001 impressed upon him just how awful things are in North America compared to. Awesome things are in North America compared to most of the rest of the world, which was an important lesson for a, native, a naive 20-year-old kid. Uh, in 2007, he joined Canadian law enforcement and has been posted to the left coast ever since. He is married to a very supportive wife and has two shockingly supportive cats. That is shocking. So, uh, Chris, to note, uh, maybe uh, throw out your uh, your disclaimer there, so we know that it's you talking and not um, the United States government. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Just um, thank you. Yeah, I just want to uh, make clear, of course, that uh, anything that um, you guys hear from me during this podcast um, is represents my own personal opinions only, and does not represent the official stance of the Department of Defense, the United States Air Force, or the National Guard Bureau. In other words, it's just me talking for me. Excellent. So, <laughs> what we want to talk about now is um, Freehold Resistance, edited by Michael Z. Williamson. Now, this is a, um, it's not exactly a story collection. It is a story collection, not exactly your run-of-the-mill story collection, and it is not exactly 
a sequel to Forged in Blood, which was out um, last year, and, but it is similar in, in, in some manner. Um, maybe you should explain this. Thanks. There's, uh, you know, the, there's an existing plot in the Freehold universe of the war, and there's an existing timeline. And what I wanted was different stories written from different points of view. But of a certain necessity, there's going to be a certain amount of crossover between events. So I put, you know, we'll just put the whole thing together at once. So every story stands alone individually, and you can read them that way. But they're, some of them are split across the timeline, and uh, all the stories together uh, concatenate into a whole that is basically a, a collective novel. So there's a finite beginning, a finite end, specific events and action throughout it, and you know, all the men and women merely players. Uh, but yeah, each character has got their own perspective yeah. on what happened, and you know, it, you only see your part of, uh, of what's going on. It, but it is a, it, it, I mean, it's a complete story. Then it's a, you would call it a novel. Well, it's, yeah, certainly, a, it's both a novel and a anthology at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a it's a it's a cool beast that's out at booksellers everywhere right now. Um, so, uh, who we have here are sort of the the people that really put the integument into this, right? Is that correct, Mike? To varying levels. Uh, so, I'll let Jess cover her stuff here in a bit. She was actually her story expanded because we had a. Uh, a story we were expecting that never actually materialized, and then she had to fill in and cover for it. Uh, Jamie Ibsen could also have covered for it, but I already had two stories from him, except one of them got bumped due to space constraints, but that's going to be in the next anthology, which we're trying to finish up now. Shameless plug. Um, and so he's going to go ahead and written that, which is really good, but I wish we'd had it for this one. Uh, this, you know, this is what happens sometimes. Things come up. Circumstances change, and you have to work around it. Um, but, uh, so yeah, Jess's starts at the beginning, ends at the end, intersperses some of the other stories. And then partway through putting this all together, I realized I needed an opposition perspective, uh, that was uh, of a significant level. You know, the, the lower level troops see their own small piece of it, but they don't see the larger picture. <clears throat> so knowing Chris had some relevant experience in this, I asked, uh, him and Jamie if they could cover the UN commander's point of view of what was going on. Um, Jamie's story is split towards the end, but I, I also gave him the title of, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, Deputy Vice, Vice, Exec Vice Deputy Assistant Editor in Charge of Continuity, in charge of and, continuity stuff. and Stuff. Yes. Uh, he, he'd already put an entire timeline together for the Freehold Universe. And much to my shock and thrill, there were surprisingly few continuity problems. There's a couple I'm going to have to retcon around on locations of things. But pretty much every event was consistent. Um, so, you know, this became a juggle where I'm editing the anthology and then I'm running stuff to Jamie to have him check against the timeline because I, I did that for Angel Eyes and, God, that'll make your eyes bleed. It's okay, so, all right, now where was this? What time was it? What star system was it in? A lot of this is taking place during uh, during Angel Eyes timeline, it, I would think, right? Um, so maybe explain the setup, maybe before we talk more about the process, um, which is that the UN invades Grania. Mm -hmm. 
maybe just start from the beginning a little bit and give a, a short pricey of, of what freehold the freehold is and what the UN has become or already is. Yeah. Well, in, in this uh, future, and it could easily happen, uh, the, the UN is very fascistic, um, you know, has tried to rope all the um, commercial and corporate power into political power. Uh, and it's it's mentioned in the background, but you know, you know a, lot, a lot of the uh, large, uh, in this case, multi-system corporations have their own political wings. And um, so there's a couple of independent systems that are mentioned in the universe, um, but they all have specific corporate backing Whereas Freyold of Grania did, but has become was basically a colony world, and has no interest in joining this, you know, the collective UN. Uh, you know, the, you could actually draw parallels to Brexit, although there was no intention of doing that because this was started before that. And um, there's all kinds of distrust and uh, unhappiness that, well, why, why, why won't you join us? It's like because we don't see any reason to. And uh, eventually the politicians come up with the brilliant idea that a war will fix it, as politicians tend to do. And then being very largely Earth-based, they, they decide they should invade the planet, whereas most of the critical infrastructure is in space. I mean, if you cut off all the uh, access to a system, you control a system. There's absolutely no reason to ever step foot on the ground. But they decide this is the way to you know, make their mark. And you know, stepping foot into someone else's backyard generally doesn't turn out well for anyone. Especially a planet like this, where people are used to going their own way. Now, Chris did brilliantly covering uh, the perspective of an outsider who's going, holy crap, what did we get into here? You know, and, you know, he wasn't willingly, the character wasn't willingly brought into it. Well, you know, Christian kind of this. Well, the so maybe we start with um, all right. So the UN invades um, and and tries to basically just make everybody to win hearts and minds by telling everybody exactly what they have to do. Free old government is not really a government. It's more of a, a it, it's more of a, an agreement between the the populace, and that's where Spiderweb sort of comes in with the the idea that this. Um, this this sort of app is allowing people to act in a what would you call it a crowd sort of crowdsource resistance is that an accurate way of putting it so it's a communication uh, a mesh communication system basically that has been built from the ground up for encryption because um well how do you communicate privately at any point, that's what you're doing. And it was actually my main character's side, one of her many, many side projects as an IT nerd and hacker was this communication app that they were building because they found one that was buggy. Couldn't get it fixed and you know, they decided to build their own. And it kind of becomes the backbone of communications trying to get information in and out in different groups. And, you know, it, how, how do you control security when there's no way to verify anyone? There's no way to ch 
catch anything. So she just kind of takes what they got and starts using it, and it manages to work because that's what yeah. she had. The, um, the the issue on both sides is, you, you know, that there's no real way to keep secure your your normal operations when everybody has a phone with a camera every, and there's a network, and you can't just shut the network off. <clears throat> You know, that, that's like shutting off the phones or closing the roads. You, you destroy everything you're trying to accomplish. <clears throat> um, but on the other side, you've got information overload. If there's 40,000 pictures, which ones are relevant? So you have to have you know, both the processing power and the people to sort through this. <clears throat> so your intel war is a case of trying to overload the enemy while select what you need. Yeah. And uh, just was, I think just was comparing that to some of the stuff that was going on in um, Hong Kong. Yeah, uh, they actually are using mesh networks to try to get around some of the censorship going on, which you know, I wrote that a year and a half before that became a thing there. But, you know, it's like that's what, in that situation, you end up going to, because if the central authority has control of the communication, they can cut it off, and they will. So you have to decentralize it to make anything work. And historically, that was part of what brought the Soviet Union down was they had to have what for the time were modern communications, but they could not control 100% what people were putting out over that modern communication. And people became aware that there was a very different world outside from what the propaganda was. And this is this is one of the cool things about the whole freehold universe is that there's not really a, you know there's no Caesar that's in charge of this this world, um, and it, you know there's Nauman I guess is the uh, the head of uh, the special forces and and such, but he's not really in charge of the people. Oh, Nauman kind of reminds me honestly of well Marshal Tito from Yugoslavia in a lot of ways. The more I've been sitting back and thinking about it. Um, okay, you know, that was intentional, but I could see that. No, yeah, and that's that's a little bit of what kind of came out of it too. You know, there's definitely uh, it, it could easily go into warlordism. You know, if he was mm-hmm. if he was so inclined. So that that's one of the things I liked about it, and uh, you know, kind of piggybacking off of what just oh god, I just used a buzzword. Um, off of what Jessica said too is you know there's a little bit of um, what happened between Estonia and Russia a few years back going on as well, and I think that kind right. of you know, puts a real bit of a contemporary, you know, Hong Kong absolutely slams at home, so to speak, but that there's uh, that there's definitely some contemporary uh, parallels and whatnot you can draw. I um, mentioned in um, Force Majeure, which is a 20,000-word story I wrote for this, and there's some other stuff, <clears throat> so I do have uh, significant content in it. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, Nowen's the ground commander, uh, and because major communication is cut off, they're, they're kind of limited. So they have a commander for ground operations. They have a commander for space operations. They think they may have a couple of other commanders elsewhere, but they don't have any way to communicate with them. So each element is having to work the best it can and use intel to determine what their own people are doing elsewhere to plan their operations. And then there's bunches of localized militia units which eventually become uniformed as time goes on. You know, one, of the, one of the things they... Uh, the remaining logistics sets up to do is to make sure they issue standardized weapons, a uniform shirt, and you know, this makes them a officially uniformed 
uh, um, what's the term? Um, lawful combatants. Lawful combatants. <clears throat> yeah. Yep. And then you know, body armor, five sizes of boots, and people just you know wear socks. But you, you want your troops to be as equipped as you can under the circumstances. Um, the last one I noticed it was when the the, uh, the civil war in Liberia, and there was a photo, and it said this is you know the president's guard. And it's 12 guys piled onto a uh, uh, Toyota pickup truck. <clears throat> They've got a Russian 51 caliber machine gun mounted on the, uh, the bar. Uh, some have got AKs, some have got FALs, but they're all wearing brand new Doc Martin boots. That's all brand new pairs. It's like, well, if someone was thinking, because if you've got some spare money, there's plenty of guns over there. Good footwear makes a difference. You know, when you've got to get up and close and engage, that, that's it, it could be a deciding factor. And if you can standardize your boots, your body armor, your uniforms, you're a long way to having a cohesive force. No, I was going to say is that um, I'm glad you bring up the Liberia thing, too, is because um, for I'm glad that there are so many touchstones throughout the entire book that aren't GY. And that's actually had a lot to do with how Jamie and I ended up writing the UN perspective in General Huff on that was that we didn't want people to fixate on, oh, this is an allegory for Iraq or Afghanistan or something like that. It's like, well, yeah, there's a little bit of that, but there's so many other things that you could put in, like Mike's mentioned already. You know, people have been doing guerrilla warfare and transitioning from guerrilla and revolutionary warfare into conventional war. Uh, for thousands upon thousands of years, and and you know, like the story says, it'll probably keep happening for a long time to come too. So that that that, that part's huge. I think that you know, it's not just a fixated on current events, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan thing. I'd, I'd written, I'd, I started writing Freehold in '97, and I finished the first draft in 2000 before anything happened with the war on terror. And as soon as it came out, there were all kinds of people, oh, this is a parallel for Iraq. It's like, well, I, I guess it could be, but that wasn't happening when I wrote it. So. <laughs> there was no intention well, the, to do that because there couldn't be. The theme is right there in the title. I mean, this is about the various characters um, in in this, uh, what becomes a war, uh, uh, coming up from guerrilla resistance into a revolution. Um it's about resistance um, in general. It's, it's an armed resistance in particular. One of the things that really struck me as, as you read Freehold in particular is just how creative and devious and how many different ideas come up um, when, when the point of view shifts away from Kendra and they start talking about, you know, there's, um, uh, there's a, a street prostitute who ends up infecting a bunch of UN soldiers with a lethal VD. There's the biospores that are deployed against them. There's um, going after the logistics. There's the destruction of the jump point and the destruction of the skywheel. There's capturing and releasing General Huff. Um, you know, and, and this general realizing releasing that him stark naked, <laughs> releasing him stark naked in the middle of the biggest park in town. Um, you know, and and there's so much going on there. Um, that, you know, it's, it's everybody's, you know, had like a visit from the good idea fairy, except at this time they really were good ideas and, and they're just, you know, pulling out all the stops and coming up with anything and everything they can think of that will demoralize or destroy, um, the UN's efforts at occupation. 
Um, and there's no way to predict it because it's utter chaos because, you know, it's thousands or millions of residents who are all going, hey, I got an idea, and somebody else going, awesome, let's do it. And then there's, um, you know, soft casualty is reprinted, and that one year, the first year's best military SF, and I was very pleased that, uh, you know, the story was received that well. But, you know, it's basically a horror story rather than a military yeah. story. That may be my favorite Michael Z. Williamson story of all time. Uh, oh, my God. I, oh, that was a heck of a jump. Yeah. That, was, that was a heck of a jumping off point, too. That kind of for had, us, uh, yeah. started this descent, this downward descent into, like, heart of darkness, of, like, horror, that literally, that we decided to go with on it, uh, just based on that. And then based on Casey's solo story, too. Yeah, uh, I, I, uh, I gave her the, um, yeah, I, I gave her the small bit of that, because I'd referenced in Freehold, you know, they, they, they just keep killing the new guy who gets into a particular slot. You know, the guy just taken out of the slot, they put a new guy in. Somebody kills the new guy. They put another new guy in the slot. Somebody kills the new guy. Yeah, yeah. Nobody wants to be that. By the, third, by the third new guy that's gone, it's obvious it's deliberate, which tells them so much. It's terrifying. Yeah, and you know, she she took that and ran with it, and it, that that story is like wow, it's it's nightmarish. <laughs> it's like, all right, who's the new guy? Like, we're sort of looking around. Yeah, like no, not me. <laughs> Well, you've got some very creative contributors here. You got a Larry Correa story. You got a Brad Torgerson story. Mike Massa. Um, some great stuff in here. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was about duelists, right? Yeah, so yeah, the professional duelists. Well, you know, the, you know, the, you know he he, he whose uh, bright you know, idea so... was it to invade a whose bright idea was it to invade a planet with an assassin's guild? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so there's dueling in this universe, so there, that implies the presence of professional duelists. And I said, yeah, I've thought about that, I haven't covered it. But there wouldn't be many of them, because most people are not going to want to duel a professional. Most people really are going to settle things before it gets to dueling. It's just sort of your you know, last resort if you don't like the court's ruling. And he said, but no, but that implies there's a small number of them. So, okay, so they're unemployed. What are unemployed duelists going to do? <laughs> and the, obviously they're going to crowdsource hits. Uh, I was able to use that as part of the information gathering network to help fund things and to help get information where it needed to go, which is where some of the the, the starting process of weaving all the stories together because that was a lot of work on Mike's yeah, part, on my part, on Chris's and Jamie's part, it was a lot of work to get those stories to actually weave together. Yeah, I've, I've got a story that interleaves, yeah. but it's out in space. Um, you know, Chris and Jamie and, and Jess's stories are on the ground among all the others, directly interacting, and, you know, heavy task. And, of course, you know, the two of them were friends. One of them was my wife, and I have to edit these uh, stories. <laughs> okay, dear, so we have to cut the word count here. Now, please don't take... <laughs> I was afraid to go to sleep some nights. Um, no. But I got to uh, tell you, man, it's tight. The end result is tight, though. I mean, it's amazing. It's, um, and, and, yeah. And, yeah every, everyone did very, very <laughs> tight, um, fast-moving, well, heavy yeah. action stories. Yeah, yeah. It all really fits together wonderfully. Um, so tell us about Force Majeure for a second. All right, there's this starship that makes things, um, and this turns out to be a key. Yeah. 
what's the futuristic equivalent of a subtender? Uh, your uh, your subfleet has to have a surface ship that can provide support, replace parts, etc. And when you're looking at two weeks travel time between star systems, if you're engaged in any kind of fighting, you can't be waiting two to four weeks for somebody to get you parts. <laughs> you need parts right now. You need the ammo right now. Hey, it turns out they've found a way to counteract that particular vehicle, so we're going to switch to this other type of uh, you know tactic, but we need those vehicles. So the factory ship is designed, is basically a machine shop <clears throat> with every form of uh, manufacturing possible. They can take raw materials, turn them into um, alloys, you know, plastic, metal, whatever, ceramic, and then turn those into finished goods. And they've got blueprints with them for anything, or they've got engineers who can design blueprints for stuff that hasn't come up yet. <clears throat> so yeah, there's production on the ground as well, but as the war gets going, they're producing you know, standardized rifles, standardized boots, standardized rocket launchers, standardized radios. And there's a couple of smuggling ships and a couple of stealth boats that are funneling these down to the surface into the habitats. And nobody, what's cool is like, nobody knows where this thing is. It's a, it's a foil to, to some of the difficulties that Huff encounters really early on. In in Freehold, there's there's a scene where he's tearing his hair out because they they keep losing these guardians to like these hundred dollar rocket launchers that the Freeholders are putting together. And and Chris and Jamie actually have you know an expanded section of their story that that covers where where Huff is just you know tearing his hair out because because of of the math involved in cannibalizing you know damaged guardians to make you know ones that will still fly meanwhile well, 25 the so we have 17 have, <laughs> yeah you know, and it's like, well hold on I we're authorized you. this but we've got yeah go ahead yeah, you 17 to make 12 <laughs> and 10 of them are functional <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, the freeholders have have their factory ship, and the factory ship is is you know cutting out all of the the middleman stuff where they're waiting to send stuff from Earth. And instead, it's like, well, you know, let's send them stuff that we know will be useful until we can until we can actually you know start getting you know mission specific requests in, and um, and away it goes, you know. And yeah, um, it's a, it's a up and... great concept. The stealth boat shows up and says, okay, so we need 5,000 rifles, ammunition for them, and we need, uh, you know, body armor and radios, this many machine guns, and they just start cranking it out, you know, running around the clock, uh, you know, nonstop. And I've got a friend who was on a sub. I asked him for some background on this game because these guys are in space, stuck inside this ship for like three years. There's no shore leave. There's no deck. There's no nothing. They're they're stuck inside a metal tube for three Earth years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that'll drive you nuts in very short order. Yeah, bubblehead yeah, there to begin with, but God bless them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, kind of like about the uh, what you were saying there too is that part of the frustration those guys see is. You know, they're pulling their hair out, going over where is all this material coming from, because that's you know obviously a, a huge intel gap that they're trying to trying to figure out. And at the same token, it's trying to convince the powers that be back home, higher up the food chain, that no, these guys are actually a lot better well equipped than you gave them credit for. They're a lot more de- deadly and dangerous than you think. And that actually went into a, a 
you know, a requisition request from Huff for additional forces and capabilities. And I'm like, you know, I've been kind of doing something like this kind of stuff for a while. I might as well just put a real one in there uh, yeah. to just kind of show what it, would, what it would look like. And then, you know, back to the uh, the aviator map, a little quick blurb on that was, that was one of the first things that I wrote just to try and get it started. And it's one of the few things that Jamie and I, you, you know, didn't collaborate outright on. Uh, along the way, it's one of the few. There's a few. There's one or two of hers. There's just one or two of mine that are all me, and that's and, and not the both of us together. But um, that we were having a hard time getting started. So I sat down, based on a real world trip that I had taken. There's a little bit of real world that went into that, but I wanted to do something that had like a little taste of the movie version of Mash and a little taste of Apocalypse Now. You know, a certain scene with Joker. Whose side are you on, son? And uh, and it may or may not have involved it. Yeah, that's Full Metal Jacket. I'm sorry. The Apocalypse-style yeah. stuff comes in after the whole, um, you know, soft casualty thing. That's when it goes hardcore, you know, the yeah. horror, the horror. But any, but anyway, um, it really was, the idea was that help kick this thing started. I'm just glad, like, the reaction when you posted that snippet of it was so huge. I kind of was just trying to get, get, get the process going. And, mm-hmm. you know, but... There was, there may be a little bit of a basis of a real-world visit to a real-world deployed aviation unit that may or may not have had something to do with um, that, the way that scene played out. Um, there may be, you know, some characters, nobody is based outright on a real person, I will say that. You know, in anything we did, kind of going along with the disclaimer from earlier, but people are definitely composites of both well, look real at and, where, uh... and, and fictional people. They wanted to de-emphasize the military nature of the military mission. So our troops had rifles, machine guns, some Hummers, nothing heavier on the ground, but they had helicopters. There's no APCs, no tanks, no artillery, but we got helicopters. There's a huge gap in your combined arms here that makes most things kind of impossible <laughs> because the politicians wanted yeah. to do it a certain way. It's referenced in Freehold, and it's referenced again in here that, you know, there was this uh, very bad assumption that, oh, well, they allow people to have firearms. So, well, there's probably some hunters and some target shooters, you know, you know and, you know, they're thinking, you know, well, maybe, you know, 5% of the population, the people out in the boonies, without realizing this, like, you know, modern-day America where everybody has got a battle rifle uh, <laughs> or an assault rifle, you know, or a, a carbine or several handguns, you know, the, the entire system is floating with weapons. So it starts off, well, you know, everyone's got weapons. Well, you can't fight a war with just weapons. You have to have the logistics, the intel, the operational command, everything else. But when you start off with that, leapfrogging is a whole lot easier. And then besides um, force-producing stuff, there's factories on the ground producing stuff to the same blueprints. And you can't monitor every factory every garage shop. I mean, I, I've, it's no secret. I've made uh, rifles in my garage using hand tools. <clears throat> it's, it's not a, you know, we're talking the, 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 the actual technology is late 19th century for most of this. The, um, the technical innovations were later, <clears throat> but there's nothing more sophisticated about the machine tool vault. And there's simply no way that you can stop this from going on. And by the way, too, that that's a big reason why um, we kind of relied a lot on some reading that we've done about the Anglo-Irish War from 1916 to 1921, and it's a, we even mentioned Michael Collins in there 
Um, just because it, just from everything that was going on, a lot of what goes on in the back in the background of the freehold war, especially the counterinsurgency piece, it just made me think of Ireland. You know, both the uh, yeah. the, the early 20th century part, and then definitely about the troubles. You know, later on also. You only need a few dozen people to keep an entire division tied down. As well, I mean, the Warsaw Ghetto demonstrated that. They held the entire division off for a month or more with a handful of small arms because nobody wants to be the first guy shot. That we, that's one thing we show in this group novel is the UN goes in with the highest-end modern technology possible, forgetting that they're going against a technical world who then returns fire at technical levels and breaks theirs and brings them down to the lower end technology that they're not familiar with because, well, that's not civilized. Yeah, they're very quickly dragged down to... Their entire dynamic. They're very quickly dragged down to 20th century technology. We've got drones. We have hackers. (laughs) We've got Intel satellites. And so do we. Uh, you do? <laughs> <laughs> Bang. Yeah, that, oh, was, that was important, too, is that, yeah, exactly. That was a big part of, like, why, you know, we were kind of footstopped that it's not GWAT, because the, the UN isn't going in blowing up Afghanistan. The UN is going in invading another fully civilized, fully functioning industrial Industrial, post-industrial space-age society here. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's not quite... The only reason you could say that it's not peer or near peer or even a peer conflict, like, you know, using buzzwords again, is just simply because of size. Right, size I mean, and the, uh, uh, right. economy. Right, exactly. It's just that the, the freehold, you know, can, can bring the bear, um, you know, just more stuff all the way around. If you could get it there, of course. We've had several, over the years, we've had several cases in the Balkans, in the Middle East, and uh, I think in Afghanistan where we've lost equipment um, due to poor technical uh, uh, security. Um, One of the, uh, I think it was one of our drones, the command signal was encrypted, but the TV cameras were not. So the insurgents were just buying TVs from Best Buy. And, well, if you're picking up the signal, from the broadcast and you can make a general estimate as to where the drone is. And when you can see what the drone is looking at, you can then do a back azimuth on that. <clears throat> and you also know what the drone is trying to target or, or, into, or to, to, uh, to observe. And, you know, it, it, I, I'd mentioned this in the weapon, you know, you can't assume that your enemy is stupid. That, that, that is the deadliest mistake you can make. And I, I, I observed the whole way through, several of our current operations, you know, if we were attacking Russia or China or somewhere in Europe, uh, you know, we'd be getting slaughtered. You know, it's, it, it, it's all well and good when you've got complete air supremacy, <clears throat> massive economy, <clears throat> and a technical advantage. But if you lose any of that, it becomes a much, much dirtier war. This is, uh, tell us a little bit more about maybe uh, Chris and, and Jamie about uh, Huff as a character and how he comes to realize this sort of stuff because um, he's really kind of a winning fun character for being you know the main bad guy in a way uh, because he's he's under all this duress from Earth as well right oh yeah absolutely and uh, Jamie how about you 
lead this one off too about what we wanted to um what we kind of wanted to achieve with it. So we wanted to humanize the UN a little bit, and especially Huff, because he is a, a decent person. You know, he's not nothing in this universe is all black and white. So he's, you know, he's not a mustache twirling villain. <clears throat> That's, that was the big thing, and then it was the just just kind of keeps in line with the way Mike kind of presents him. Maybe it's a lot because of your background. Um, he just did not strike us as American either, and we thought um, it was really important to kind of bring in to also kind of hit at that deeper history stuff um, that he ended up being um, South African in this case, and it just seemed to be somebody who would find himself in an insurgency dirty war situation and maybe have a little bit more uh, deep inside about it. We thought that just might be, one, would be interesting, and two, it just seemed to fit. And um, the more we started digging into things like, you know, the British South African police and Rhodesia, the conflict there and all that, we mentioned the Ireland thing, too, it just just worked. I'm I'm really happy to hear that people, you think he's, uh, our take on him, was awesome. I mean, Mike. Mike gave us a lot to work with. You know, about uh, uh, twelve hundred to a couple, maybe about two thousand words that, that we started with. Um, started building out from there, but it was really important too that Huff one behave, act like a general. So again, I had some experience in my career that kind of really helped me sort of put bones on that. And two, generals are never one person in real life, especially not at his level. At the three- and four-star level, they start becoming a gestalt in a lot of ways of their staffs, of the senior people around them, of their aides. That's one reason why we put an aide-to-camp character in there, of their uh, of the enlisted, uh, senior enlisted that they interact with, of their um, senior staff heads, their vices, their deputies, you know, all that sort of stuff. It all feeds in. If they've got personal staff, uh, shoot, it could be the friggin' driver. Or in our case, uh, the personal security officer that he has, who ends up being a significant part of his uh, of his retinue, if you will. So Huff, yeah, Huff is Huff the man, but he's also Huff the composite of all these people that are trying to help him command this operation. You know, and, and we tried to blow it out even more. It's one thing if, like, you're managing the war in Iraq or Afghanistan by themselves, or even during World War II, like managing the entire Pacific Theater. Well, okay, let's blow this out even more. This dude's trying to manage the fight in the entire star system. So mm-hmm. what what does that look like? You know, what, what sort of command and control, what sort of staff um, responsibilities, what sort of staff... It looks like ulcers and heavy drinking. To pull that off. Uh, yeah, it looks that, like ulcers well, and heavy drinking. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, you know, he's he's an army. You know, he's in the army, so there's there's drinking. Yeah. <laughs> that was part one of a two-part roundtable discussion. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. 
until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them. He united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 47 Keita peeked around the corner of the storehouse. The only people he saw moving were worker cast, and they were concentrating on putting out fires or caring for their wounded. There weren't any warriors in sight. Not that either group would murder them, if given the opportunity, just that one would be a lot better at it. Thera was at the other corner, trying to be discreet, but that was difficult when your stolen horse kept stomping and making noise. Maybe we can take the mountain path the Somsak came down. And go where? Deeper into the homeland of the house that's trying to murder us? Maybe there's another trail that branches off so that'll take us back to the trade road. If you've got a better idea, I'd love to hear it. They couldn't swim an icy river. Waiting around until that was doable would get them killed for sure. From the smoke rising from the castless quarter, the only residents who might have been inclined to hide them were under attack. The workers would turn them over to appease the raiders. I've got nothing. Then let's go. From the sound of it, Ashok still has their attention. Even with everything he'd learned about protectors and bearers, it was a little astonishing that a lone man could fight a whole army for that much time, and for just a moment, Keita felt a little flicker of hope that maybe this was all going to work out, after all. If the Forgotten truly wanted Ashok to be his general and lead his people to greatness, then the gods would surely provide a way. Except the voice had already spoken, and it seemed like the way provided ended in martyrdom and death. Maybe the Forgotten had only given Ashok the strength to last this long, so that Keita had a chance to overcome his fear and fulfill his destiny. As usual, the voice's prediction had been cryptic, and only available at the most damnably inconvenient of times. But for the things that had come to pass so far, it had never been wrong. But what if it wasn't perfect after all? He'd written down several pronouncements that hadn't happened yet, and he'd always just assumed those things would happen in the future. What if the voice was wrong? What if Thera was right and the ones that had happened had been lucky guesses? If that was the case, then all of his work, and all of Ratul's work before him, meant nothing. He truly believed the Forgotten existed because he'd seen the miracles with his own eyes. But if the Forgotten was fallible, was he really a god at all? They put their hoods up 
and kept their faces down low as they moved past the distracted workers. Some of them were crying over dead loved ones, or wailing as their homes burned to the ground right in front of them. The raiders had truly made a mess of things, and it reminded Keita that his people weren't the only ones suffering injustice in this world. The whole men of Jarlang made their living from the dirt, and being unlucky enough to live in a place a fugitive had hidden was their only crime. Such destruction was uncivilized. The raiders were violating the law, and they'd surely be punished for it eventually. But no fines or executions or prison sentences administered afterwards would help Jarlang today. There was a crowd of villagers at the end of the road, but they were all looking the other way, watching as events unfolded in the square. Only an hour ago, many of them had been part of the angry mob that had formed on that very spot. But now they were only helpless observers. Well, not too helpless. Because if they realized Keita and Thera were traveling companions of the man who'd brought all of this misery to their sleepy village, they'd probably rip them limb from limb. As they got closer, Keita caught glimpses of what had the crowd's attention. There were bodies strewn all over the open area, and a huge group of Somsak warriors were converging on the bridge to the castler's quarter. There's Ashok, Thera said. I can't believe he's still standing. Keita had to shield his eyes. The angle was such that the reflection on the eyes from the climbing sun was blinding. The bridge seemed to glow like molten gold in the morning light. It couldn't be. He had to see. Heedless of danger, Keita began pushing his way through the workers. Please, get out of my way. He tried to force his way through, but everyone here was bigger and heavier than he was. The damnable bunch of pick-swingers didn't realize that they were preventing a keeper from seeing a prophecy fulfilled. Growing frustrated, Keita shoved someone. Move! The worker turned and shoved him back. Keita balled up a fist and punched him in the stomach. The man went down, groaning. I must see this! Keita got to the front of the crowd. Ashok held the bridge. In one hand was the furious Angruvadal, a swift black arc of destruction. And in his other hand was a Somsak shield, riddled with crossbow bolts. The bridge wasn't very wide, so soldiers could only come at him two or three at a time, and Ashok kept forcing them back over the side, sometimes in pieces. As Keita watched, the fallen protector beat soldier after soldier, while behind him scores of castlers could be seen running through the smoke, all fleeing down a path to the north. The bridge seemed to glow with reflected light. Or, as the voice had described its vision, the Forgotten's chosen general stood on a bridge made of crystal, sacrificing himself to save the innocent. Keita's heart was suddenly so filled with hope that he thought it might burst. The workers around him were quivering with fear, knowing that when the Somsak finished their work, all they could do was beg for mercy, for unknowingly harboring the infamous criminal. They didn't realize that something amazing was happening right before their very eyes. It's true. Don't you see? It's all true. Keita told the workers. Only there had been more to the prophecy. 
It had said that general would have to fight a demon in the body of a man. And as soon as Keita had that thought, he knew exactly which one it had to be. A lone Somsack was slowly lumbering toward the bridge, while the others hurried to get out of his way. His intricate armor was painted black, and there were antlers on his helmet. There was something alien about his manner, an eerie impression that caused Keita's skin to crawl. The keeper knew somehow that this man's very existence offended the gods. His sword was a long, fat chunk of steel, the sort of heavy, clumsy thing only used for executions. And from the way he was carrying himself toward the bridge, that's exactly what he expected this fight to be. As the keeper of names, Keita was compelled to testify to the world. He turned toward the crowd and shouted, Behold! The Forgotten has called Ashok Vadal to be his general. He is the one who will free you from tyranny. They were all looking at him now. He'd never preached to a big group of whole men before, but when Ram Rowan had fallen from the sky, he'd protected all men from the demons. Thera was behind the workers, waving her arms to get his attention. She was mouthing the words, shut up, repeatedly. But she couldn't understand that Keita's faith had just been reaffirmed and that a fervor had come upon him. It was his duty to spread the truth, no matter the costs. Listen to me, people of Jarlang. If you help protect his general, the Forgotten will save you from these raiders. The gods are on our side. Heed my words. The law cannot protect you now. Only Ashok can. He turned back to see what would happen next. Sadly, before he could watch the duel between Ashok and the demon in the form of a man, someone whacked him in the head with a rock. Dazed, Keita landed on the hard ice and tried to roll over. Between kicks to the ribs and blows to the face, Keita realized that maybe this testifying thing wasn't all it was cracked up to be. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a bucket full of ohms, voltages, and amps from which to create the ultimate resistance factor. Plus, thanks and plaudits to Michael Z. Williamson, Jessica Schlenker, Chris Denote, Jamie Denote, and Jamie Ibsen, editor and authors of Freehold Resistance. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Stars.